0: Morning, everybody. As we enter into the third week of our Harry Isn't Scary series, I do want to start talking big picture for the Bible for just a moment before we move into the character from Genesis. But there's a part in the letter to Timothy where Paul will refer to Scripture as being God breathed or inspired. And I'm not sure what all that means, but at the very least, what I don't think Paul means when he says that the Bible is inspired by God is what I call a dictation view of Scripture, meaning that The author sat down with a pen in hand and a paper in hand, and then God just gave them every last word what to say, that when you read the Bible as a whole, what you'll see is there's lots of different authors, and God allows them to write with their particular background, their particular grammatical perspectives, their particular vocabulary, and so every book of the Bible, depending on its author, is different than the next. And what you see collectively is that the Bible is very dynamic, and it's very complex, And it's very simple, and it's all the things that we… Like, it's huge and massive in scope, and there's so much in it that still remains for us mystery, and that ought not to throw us off. That ought not to kind of make us go, well, we don't understand this perfectly, or I don't quite get this passage. I would also say that inspiration does not mean what is also referred to as a flat view of the Bible. What that means is everything is equal to everything else in the Bible. I think those that have a flat view of the Bible believe they're protecting the idea that, well, the Bible is God's Word. How could you say that any of God's words are less than or greater than than any of other of God's words, if that makes sense to you? And thus, they have a flat view or that it's equal. And I get where that comes from, but a flat view of Scripture so often dismisses the fact that the Bible has all sorts of different genres. And you know what I mean by genre, right? Like today, you have like historical novels, nonfiction, fiction, romance, my favorite. I mean, those are different genres that you have. Same thing with the Bible. When you open to the Bible, you've got some that are historical in nature, you've got some that are poetic in nature, proverbial, and then, right, there's Gospels, and so there's lots of different genres in the Scriptures, and a flat view tends to just dismiss that. The second thing that a flat view of Scripture does is it dismisses even context, that these stories and these paragraphs and these words are in context around other things that then help make sense of the words itself. And when you have a flat view, it's so easy then just to rip verses out of its context, just throw them out like a machine gun. And you can often hear fundamentalist preachers quoting this verse here, that verse there, here verse there, verse everywhere, verse, verse. They kind of put it all together as if you know they all have equal weight and authority. But in my mind, if we really think about it, like Matthew chapter four verse three is not equal to Matthew chapter four verse seventeen. And the reason why is because of context. Matthew four three, it's the words of Satan. Where he says to Jesus, if you're the Son of Man, command these stones to become bread. That's not near as authoritative to me as Matthew four seventeen, where Jesus himself is speaking and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That the genealogy of Noah's sons does not have the same weight of authority to me as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus Himself, if you listen to Him, He'll often reveal that He doesn't have a flat view of His Scripture either. In fact, one day a crowd He's teaching, and someone comes up and says, "Hey, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment?" Now, there's 613 commands in the Old Testament, and somebody steps up to Jesus and says, "Which one is the greatest?" Now, if Jesus has a flat view of Scripture, what is He going to say? What He's going to say is, "Well, what do you mean, which the greatest?" Like. They're all God's commands. If they're God's commands, how are any of them the greatest? They're all, right? No command of God is greater than the other command of God. But he doesn't. If you'll remember Matthew 22, when somebody asks him the question, he's got no problem saying, oh, that's easy. Out of six hundred and thirty-two commands, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you're looking for a second place, it's love your neighbor as yourself. He, he does not have a flat view of a scripture. He's able to say, these are more weighty, these are more important, and everything hangs on these passages. In fact, when you see how the New Testament even uses the Old Testament as they write their letters and their books, What you'll see is Jesus becomes their filter by which they now read. The resurrection of Jesus becomes the lens by which they now read everything back in their scriptures. And in it, Jesus becomes primary. And that's why a command to annihilate a Canaanite nation in the Old Testament does not trump Jesus' command to love our enemies in the new because we do not have a flat view of scripture. And you can even see it, one more point here, even suddenly like the Apostle Paul the church of Corinth is asking a bunch of questions about being married, like, well, what if they're a virgin and, like, can you marry here? Or what about if you've been divorced, could you get remarried? And so Paul will answer these questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He'll start to give his advice, and he'll remind himself, now, this is actually from the Lord. Like, this not I, but the Lord told us this, and then he'll repeat it. When you get to verse 12, he'll offer his advice, and he'll have to make a note that, now, this is not the Lord. This is from me. Like, from me, Paul, your apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by embracing the Bible with all of its complexity and dynamics and movements and emphases, I think we actually honor the way in which God chooses to speak to us. This doesn't take anything away from God. It only reinforces that whenever God seems to relate to us, He does so incarnationally, which is a big fancy word that just means He uses humans. And a flat view of Scripture passes right over that. So, as we said last week, it's okay when you read Genesis to be disturbed by parts of it. It's okay to walk away and go, yeah, I don't, I'm not okay with that. I don't get that. And that doesn't need to disrupt our faith that we don't have everything make perfect sense. Now, with that, I want to talk to you today about a guy in Genesis who would love the theme, Harry isn't scary. Like, when he found out that the church was doing this as a message series, he would be all about it because the Bible itself tells us he was one hairy dude. And his name is Esau. So I'd like to share with you today everything I know about Esau from the Bible, and to do so, there's three different episodes in the Bible we're going to read. And so there's a lot of scripture I'm going to read today. I hope that doesn't throw you off, but I want you to see these three main episodes about the character Esau, and then we'll wrap it up and talk about why is this in our Bible. So let's start with episode number one. Now, last week, you remember who we talked about last week, anyone, anyone? It's like a whole week ago, right? And then there's a snowstorm. It was Ishmael is who we talked about last week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ishmael is who we talked about last week. Now, Ishmael... Is Esau's uncle, so Esau's dad is Isaac, who is a son of Abraham, in whom the covenantal promises of God went through. So Esau will be born to a very important man, Isaac. Genesis twenty-five verse nineteen is where I'll be. Genesis twenty-five nineteen says this: "This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebekah." daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padanaram, Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she couldn't get pregnant. She was childless. So the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah became pregnant. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this in the scriptures, but barrenness is a very prominent theme throughout Genesis. It feels like infertility issues are abound abound in terms of the book of Genesis. Sarah, Isaac's own birth story was infertile. Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, almost all of the patriarchs of our faith were born to women who at least struggled for a time with issues of infertility, which leads us to ask, what is up with that? Like, is there some sort of genetic thing getting passed on? And I don't think that's it. I think it's theological intent that what the author wants you to see even in those circumstances is... Each one of these stories will highlight that God's promises, that covenant He made, will be fulfilled, not by human action, but by His own power, that God will open up the womb and they will bear a child, that God is in control of this, that God will receive the credit for the promises that He has made. And so, here's what happens. She's pregnant, and in verse 22, it says, the babies. It's the first hint that, uh uh-oh, this isn't just one. Like, they gave her treatment. She might have five in there. Who knows? No, I'm just kidding. It's just, the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, what is up with this? And then she wouldn't ask God about it. So picture this in your mind. Like, her pregnancy, Rebecca's pregnancy is so rough and so difficult, not just your typical sweet little, oh, look, the baby kicks here. Oh, I feel this. Like, and I know it could be uncomfortable, right, ladies? Now, I'm not talking firsthand here, but, like, ladies, right, you be uncomfortable at night to sleep. and You had all sorts of movement. But it feels to Rebecca like there is a war in my womb, and what is up? Like, she's talking to her best friends, is this normal? And they're all saying, that seems a little rough to me, I don't know. So her pregnancy is so difficult, she even, I'm sure, has legitimate fears of miscarriage, and so she goes out and asks God, and God answers her. And this is what God tells her. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, which, just stop there for a moment and go, wow, (laughs) like, I just want to know, like, digestion issues, like, what's going on, like... You've got two nations inside your womb. I mean, she's thinking, that's what it feels like, <laughs> and they are at war right now. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. <laughs> Like, how would you like that? Like, we got a baby picture of Esau here. This is what he looked like at birth. Um, <laughs> isn't that, I mean, isn't this crazy? Like, not one of those ones like, oh, it's a sweet little baby. Like, oh, my goodness, that's a rabbit. Like, that's what, like, a hairy. So Rebecca's having twins, and the first one to come out, he's red and he's hairy. And so they name him because he's so red, they just say, We've got to call him Esau, which means red. Another name for Esau is Edom. Same thing. It means red. And the Bible tells us he was like a hairy garment. So Esau comes out like a fur coat. So that's what you're looking at in terms of birth. Anyhow, here's what happens next. Verse 26. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel as if to say, Oh, no, come back here. I'm going to be first. So when that happened, they named him Jacob, which means... Heel grabber. Or Jacob is the name, Jacob, which also means deceiver. Heel grabber. I mean, and Jacob's out there. Jacob's a very popular name. Right? Jacob, your name literally means deceiver, which, you know, my middle name is Jacob, so we're kind of solidarity here. Jacob. And, you know, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. And then it kind of fast forward, we kind of get a glimpse of the, their kind of their personalities, their character, what they're kind of like. Kind of stereotypically, here's what we know. Verse 27 of Genesis 25. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Okay? So you got two totally different personalities. Esau was kind of more on your redneckish side of things. He enjoyed watching reruns of Duck Dynasty. That's who he related to. He loved hunting. He loved the outdoors. He was a manly man who enjoyed hunting bears with Vladimir Putin. Jacob, on the other hand, he enjoyed cooking shows on the Food Network and getting decorating tips from Color Splash on HGTV. He was more cultured and refined, and he had a sense of style. And then here it is in verse 28. It says this, Isaac, the dad who had a taste for wild game, he loved Esau. But Rebecca, the mom, she loved Jacob. Now, I don't know when any of these characters of the Bible are going to take just a simple one-on-one family course to recognize and learn that having favorites never works out. It's always full of jealousy and infighting and murder plots, but the Bible tells us that Isaac loves his firstborn son, Esau. Rebecca, she loves jakey Pooh, That's her favorite. The next scene that happens is verse 29 of 25. It says this. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, because he probably got a good recipe off of Food Network, Esau came in from the open country famished, and he said to his brother Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, which is interesting because that's his name, right? Red stew. I'm famished. By the way, parenthetical note, this is why they call him Edom, because of this, red. Jacob replied, and get this, he says, first, sell me your birthright. (laughs) Come on, dude, really? Like, I just want some soup. That's what he's saying here. He said, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, no, no, swear to me first. Then Jacob gave Esau, so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright, which is crazy to me, isn't it? Like lentil soup, which, hey, I'm down for a good soup, especially on a weather like this, but I'm not selling my birthright for that. It's ridiculous but this was actually something you could do back in the day. You could transfer your rights of inheritance as the firstborn to another sibling. It was rare because it was ridiculous and only in the rarest of circumstances would you. And here we get a portrait of Esau who's a little bit compulsive, right? He's got a little compulsive issues. He's making rushed decisions and in the end, it's going to screw him out of a potentially great future. And I could probably stop here. We could spend the rest of our time in the sermon just talking about that reality, the times in our life where we make a compulsive decision and it undoes everything. Maybe like Esau, you can look back and you felt desperate or you felt overwhelmed in your own scarcity or you had some physical need that you just had to have met or by whatever means necessary, you find a moment of satisfaction only to realize afterwards, oh no, I just ruined my future. And it happens all the time. In fact, if we were to look back, my guess is we would all have an Esau moment that as soon as we are satisfied and our belly is full of the soup, we think, what in the world was I thinking? soup is not worth losing my birthright. And often you have somebody right there to egg you on, just like Jacob is manipulating the situation here. Come on, baby. If you really love me, you'd let me then fill in the blank. Or it's just this one time. It's no big deal. No one will ever know. Or are you kidding me? You deserve it. You know how much money this company makes per year in profit? Like you are undervalued and you are underpaid. You totally deserve to get a little something for exchange for all that hard work. Now the Bible will quickly turn back to Isaac's story, and Esau will make an entrance one more time at the very end of chapter 26, just to tell us he got married. So here's what it says in chapter 26, verse 34, Esau gets married. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter Abri, the Hittite. Now Hittites are Canaanites, so the land that they're in, he married somebody who's from there. And he also married Basmath, which I don't like this name, daughter Elon, the Hittite they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So you get that they were saying there like Isaac and Rebekah did not like their daughter-in-laws. So if you ever have an issue with your son marrying a woman you don't like, hypothetically speaking, you'll be in good company with Rebekah and Isaac. They didn't like theirs either. And the main reason is because their daughter-in-laws were not from their own people, their own clan so to speak. I mean, even cousins would be okay. And Esau, he seemed to have a fondness for some of the native Hittite ladies and married them. So that's episode one, okay? Now, episode number two. It starts at Genesis 27, verse 1. It says this, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, meaning he was about blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Then prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So what's happening is Isaac's thinking, listen, I don't know how much longer I got, I'm an old man, I can't see. Let me give you a blessing before I die. This is a big deal. The firstborn, he wants to bring him on in, give him his blessing before he dies. And then verse five. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, now it's also Isaac's son, but who's Rebecca's favorite? Jacob. He says, Come over here, Jacob. Listen. Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you, Rebecca, Esau's own mom. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then you take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I have smooth skin from all the manscaping. What What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau. You hear what's happening here, right? Rebekah goes into Esau's bedroom, opens up his dresser drawers or his closet, gets out some of Esau's best clothes, and then it says he puts them on the younger son, Jacob. Verse 16, she also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins, which right here, like how hairy does Esau have to be, that goat skin? Like, yep, that's Esau. Like, that dude is hairy. Then she handed her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made, and he went to his father and said, "'My father.'" I meant, "'My father.'" "'Yes, my son.'" "'Who is it?' Jacob said to his father, "'I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so you may give me your blessing.'" And Isaac asked his son, "'How did you find us so quickly, my son?' See, something's tw- turning in his eyes. He's like, "'Wait a minute.'" And what's interesting, Jacob will even use the name of God to tell a lot here. "'How did you get this so quickly, my son?' The Lord, your God, gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, because still not right, the wires aren't coming together yet. He says, hmm, well, come near so I could touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son, Esau, or not. So Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. <laughs> like in the goatskin, that's Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son, Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game deeds, eat so that I may give you my blessings. He's had Esau's food before. If it tastes like it, it's probably Esau. So Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. Still a little. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, remember what mom did? Took Esau's clothes, put them on Jacob. And when he, Isaac smelt the clothes, he knew. He said, ah. The smell of my son is like the smell of a field, which I can't tell you how many times I've said that about my own sons, just kind of, just teasing. A field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and may those who bless you be blessed. Those sneaky jerks. Like, not only did Jacob steal the the birthright, now he stole the blessing. And his mother, Rebekah, orchestrated the whole thing. It's about awkward thanksgivings. Like, this is awkward. Genesis 27, verse 30 then says this, After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence and walks his brother Esau, he came in from hunting, and he too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, well, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. And this is verse 33. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed." And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. To which Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Remember what Jacob means? Deceiver. This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. And then he said, Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heavens above you will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And in a moment here, Esau, who up until this time just seems more like a bonehead, becomes a tragic figure in the Bible, and you can't help but feel sorry for him. He's been tricked and deceived, not only by his younger brother, that heel grabber, but his own mother. And the text shows us the depth of his anguish as he begs and pleads for his father to give him a blessing too. And all his father can do is reiterate what has already been spoken. Your brother will be greater. Now, this is weird to us because we would just go, take it back. It's like, just forget it. Like, yeah, let me give you a blessing too. But in Hebrew thought, there's an associative uh, response to words. Like words are important and they matter. And once they're out, you don't get to just say, I had my fingers crossed or I take them back, especially when it becomes a formal benedictory setting. And what Isaac knows is I've already spoken this blessing and I can't retrieve it. And when I think about our own day and age, there's not much I can compare it to because we just don't live like this or think about words in this way. The closest I come to is wedding ceremonies, like in the wedding ceremony. Like if you're asking me, like, when does a husband and wife actually, like, when are they officially married? When do they become husband and wife? It's towards the end when the pastor makes the pronunciation. It's what I get to say as the pastor if I'm officiating a wedding when I get to say, according by the authority of God and in accordance with the laws of the state of Indiana, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now you're married. See, now you may kiss your wife. You may kiss your bride. That's a pronunciation, and it kind of has that sense that there's a weightiness to it. There's sort of an authority to it. That's the way it was like when Isaac was to pronounce his blessing. It kind of has that same tone, that same illustration. And so, as you can imagine, Esau doesn't take kindly to this. In verse 41 of Genesis 27, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, my dad's going to die. When he does, I'm killing my brother. Verse 42 When Rebekah was told that what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say, which I did that last time. Look where it got us. Uh, Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, right? I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why shall I lose both of you in one day? And so, later in chapter 20, verse 6, Esau learns that Isaac did uh, bless Jacob to go to Uncle Laban's house and to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, his dad also said, make sure you don't marry any Canaanite women. And it's like the first time the light bulb went on in Esau's mind, like, oh, mom and dad don't like Canaanite women, and I married a two Canaanite women. And so, when that happens, it tells us in verse 8 that Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So, he went back to Ishmael. Remember Ishmael from last week? He goes back to his uncle Ishmael and marries his daughter, Mahalath, the sister of Nabiath, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, and who, in addition to the wives he had already had. So Isaac comes ba- or Ishmael comes back up in our story from last week. This time, he marries his daughter to Esau. So remember, put this together now. Ishmael is Esau's uncle, which would make his daughter Esau's cousin. Yes, Esau marries his cousin. Welcome to the Bible. Number three, last episode, episode number three, 20 years have gone by. It's been 20 years. So Jacob has been in exile. He's been away from his homeland for 20 years, afraid of his brother Esau because Esau promised to kill him. So 20 years later, a lot has happened in Jacob's life. A lot of things have taken place, and now he wants to go back home. He knows he can't do so until he figures out how to deal with Esau and encountering Esau. So here's what happens, Genesis 32, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, now notice the language he uses here? To my lord Esau, your servant Jacob, all this is on purpose, right? Because it's like a diplomatic me- mission, mission here where we got to kind of, hopefully things are going to be okay. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Now, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, hey, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. (laughs) Like, oh, snap, this is not good news, right? Like, if it's just a couple of men, that's no big deal, right? Oh, a little entourage. 400 men is a militia. So immediately, fear grips, this has not worked. Like, 20 years later, I sent off a message, crossed my fingers, hope it'd be good. No, Esau's coming with 400 men. Verse 7, in great fear and distress... Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well because he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, maybe the other group will escape. Then Jacob prayed, which is always a good idea. Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, it was you who said to me, he reminds God of his promises here. It was you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. Listen, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And then he spent the night there, and from what he had, he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. I like this strategy number two, like, okay, send a good message, uh, pray, and let's bribe him with gifts. Like, maybe that will kind of appease him. And here's the gifts that he sent. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls. That is a lot of ribeye steak and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third, all the others who followed the herds, you're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure you say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Now, just as a little prelude, what happens next is Jacob wrestles with God, and it's an amazing story. We don't have time for it this morning, but you should go home and read this story in the text. I think it'll be, it's very fascinating in terms of the wrestling match. In fact, Jacob will get his name changed at this point from Jacob to Israel. But carrying on, let's pick up with, all right, now's the encounter with Esau. What happens? First one, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Ooh. No. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the female servants and their children in front. Now you know why he does this, right? This is a strategy. If Esau's coming and attacks us, they'll get let's put the people who are most dispensable, the female servants and their kids will be first. And then right behind them he put Leah and her children next, and then finally behind them, Rachel and Joseph. Do you remember who Jacob's favorite is? Joseph there in the rear he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother now if this was a movie the music would be kicking up it would be intense, it would be on the edge of our seats oh my goodness what's about to happen, 400 guys and Esau and Jacob about to encounter verse 4 Esau ran to meet Jacob and he embraced him he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept then Esau looked up And saw the women and children, who are these with you? He asked. And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached, and they bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came, and they bowed down. And last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And then Esau asked, well, what was the meaning of all the flocks and the herds that I met on the way here? It's to find favor in your eyes, my lord. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. It's kind of like at lunch, like you're arguing who's going to pay the bill. No, no, let me. No, no, let me. No, I can't. No, no, I want to. Like, that's what's happening here. So then Esau says, let's be on our way, and I'll accompany you. Now, Jacob is happy that he got received the way he did, but he's still not sure. Like, what if we're on our way and all of a sudden Esau changes his mind and then we're all dead men? So Jacob says to his brother, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So go on, let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer." So Esau said, well, at least let me leave some of my men with you. Jacob No, don't want any of your armed guards. It's all right. Why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. And I have a feeling this is the moment where Esau knew we're probably parting ways. Like, I've got my life. You've got your life. It's been 20 years. You're, you're not coming to Seir with me. And so they part ways here. That day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. And Jacob, however, went to Succoth where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. This is the parting of the ways for Jacob and Esau, and it will be the end of Esau in recorded history. The Bible, with the exception of a genealogy, will now focus its attention to Jacob, who will be the carrier of the covenant blessing of God. But what you'll see, and we've seen this many times now, the ongoing motif in Genesis is a power struggle and jealousy sparked by parental favoritism that leads into provoking sin that threatens God's harmony, which leads to punishment by exile, and then followed by reconciliation. What you see in this story is that it isn't Jacob's plan to pacify Esau that succeeds, but his prayer, where he asks God to change the heart of his brother Esau. Which then leads us to ask, why is this in our Bible? Why, why is the story of Esau in the Bible? Now, some reasons are quite straightforward, like, where did all the Edomites come from? Like, the Edomites are a nation that exists during the time of Israel, to their south, and they're large. Israel's large neighbors are the Edomites, And the story here lets us know where they came from. Oh, those are the descendants of Esau. And if you're an Israelite, it also lets you know, and we're better than them. Like that's the point. Read the story. You'll know we're better than them. Are we related? Yes, we're both ancestors of the same father. But our ancestor Jacob got the blessing and the birthright. God said that the younger would be served by the older. So we're number one we're number one. This is kind of an Israelite rally cry here. But the Edomites are a large nation. In fact, what's interesting is Genesis 36 is an entire chapter devoted to Esau's genealogical line, and it's extensive, and it covers multiple generations. Now, Esau and Jacob will unite one more time to bury their father Isaac when he dies, much the same way that Isaac and Ishmael came together to bury Abraham when he died. But the Bible does want us to know Esau did quite well. Even though You know, he was not the child of blessing that Jacob was. God took care of him. In Genesis 36, verse 6, it tells us, Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. Oh, that's how they all got there. Genesis 36 verse 15 will give a whole list of the chiefs who were among Esau's descendants. We'll list them all out. In chapter, in chapter 36 verse 31, it'll be a whole list of kings who reigned in Edom who came from Esau even before any king in Israel reigned. And so what the Bible wants you to know is the Edomites were brothers to the Israelites. They exist because God made a promise to their granddad Abraham that from him many nations would come forth. And even though the Edomites will become the enemies of Israel, and during the Iron Age of history, King David will conquer the Edomites and make them vassals of Israel, but in spite of the history with Edom, Esau is really kind of painted in a fairly positive light. He shows God-like forgiveness to his brother who does not deserve it. He'll get a full genealogical record, which is kind of rare in the Bible, especially for an outsider of an Israelite. He's favored by his dad. He's wronged by his brother. He becomes a tragic and sympathetic character. Yet, in spite of that, the Bible tells us he prospered in the promised land while Jacob was off in exile. But another reason why I think this story is in your Bible is because I think it's theologically from history trying to explain the present. It's theologically from stories of history trying to explain the present. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I think the final form of Genesis that we have that we read in our Bible probably wasn't completed till after the southern tribes of Judah came out of their exile, which began in 586 B.C. So Genesis is like just centuries after I think the events took place, and I think that's probably when it was written. But because of that time, it's got to kind of explain what's going on. And one of the things that's happening is the use of the younger brother usurping the older brother as a constant storyline in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So if you are a younger brother, listen to me for a moment. i got some good news for you. If you're a younger brother, hey, Caleb, listen to this for just a moment. God has this unexpected habit of favoring younger brothers over the elder brothers, which is weird because not only in society but even especially back then, Firstborn sons have status, like they're next in line to be king, they inherit the wealth, they get dad's truck, they have the biggest bedroom. But in the Bible, the younger over and over gets favored over the older. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau, Joseph over all of his older brothers, Ephraim over Manasseh, Moses over his older brother Aaron, David over all of his older brothers, Solomon over all of his older brothers. It's just over and over and over again. And why? These stories serve to explain why the southern kingdom, the younger brother of just two tribes, little Benjamin and little Judah, how they survived Babylonian exile, whereas their older brother, the tribes to the north, who were much larger and more powerful, were completely wiped off of the pages of history 150 years earlier by the Assyrians. What these stories do is, Israel's stories of the deep past were not written just to talk about what happened back then. They were written to explain what is. The past is shaped to speak to the present. How did we, the younger brothers, survive and they did not? It goes all the way back to Esau's story, where God made a promise to Isaac and Rebekah that the younger would be served by the older but finally, probably more specific even to our lives, these stories communicate some very important things. What happens is throughout these stories, it's full of twists and turns and ups and downs and moments of tension that look like everything's going to be lost. Like, and in the end, God always shows up and God always keeps his promise. And what these stories communicate to us is God is able to carry out his promises in the face of every obstacle, every barrenness, every rivalry, and every sin. And what we discover is the fulfillment of God's purposes in our life don't usually look like a neat, straight line. And this is what it looks like when you're younger, right? Like when you get out of college, you're like, hey, I'm at, I'm at point A, and my life plan is to be here at, at point B. And we think it's going to be a straight line from point A to point B. And then 40 years later, you look back and you go, oh, life didn't look anything like that. Like my life went like this, whoa, I went here and then this happened that I didn't see coming and then I took this detour that I never planned on and then this circumstance hit me and then this thing took place and then I was sitting in the doctor's office and they gave me this dial and it never goes in a straight line. It is full of twists and turns and detours and it was not according to plan. And what you need to know from these stories is I know God will always show up. Like, it's the same thing that's happening in Genesis. Like, twists and turns and who would have ever predicted that this old mother would pull the schema and then, like, I know. But in the end, God shows up and offers blessing. And so, over and over again, just be aware that God will be faithful. And I know, I know. It feels like you're hanging on by a thread. And I know it feels like, ooh, we're about to go over a cliff. And I know what it feels like, but in the end, God always shows up. And what these stories also remind us is that God blesses those who really have no claim to it and have no right to receive it. Like Ishmael, he gets blessed right alongside his brother. He didn't deserve it. He doesn't have a claim to it. The covenant promises aren't going through him, but God still blesses him. Esau gets a blessing he didn't deserve. He doesn't have a claim to it. And when you think about it, this is the story of our gospel. We get a blessing in Jesus Christ that we really have no claim to, that we don't deserve. And yet because of Jesus, our elder brother, we get a blessing. The New Testament plays this out even ethnically for us. For most of us in the room, we aren't Jewish. We aren't a part of that ethnic line of Abraham. The good news is, in Jesus, even outsiders get to be insiders. It's what it calls grace, that we get to taste God's grace because of Jesus. We have no claim to it. We don't deserve it. It's just offered to us freely. And these stories remind us of that reality. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these stories. We pray, Lord, that you just allow them to work in our heart and our mind to remind us in those moments when it does feel like we are barely hanging on, that you've made us a promise and you will keep your promise. That when it feels like our faith is sort of wavering because of the things that are going on around us, to remind us that you are a God, that when you say something, you will always follow through. And though we don't have anyone else on the face of the earth that we could probably say that about, we want to be able to have confidence in you in it. So would you strengthen our faith? And we say also to you, thank you for extending to us grace that we did not have a claim on nor did we deserve but you just did it because you're crazy in love with us this we're grateful for in jesus name amen